This is an audio sermon recorded at Highway 71 Church of Christ in Alma, Arkansas. We are Christians seeking to worship God in spirit and in truth. We would love for you to worship with us at 1030 on Sunday mornings at 1808 Highway 71 North in Alma, Arkansas. It's good to see you all this evening. I'm looking forward to our study and it's a, it's a topic I've really enjoyed studying. It's something that applies very well to me and something I really relate well to. Um, it's about the stories we tell ourselves. I'm, I'm one of those people that I, I will tell myself a story about every experience that I go through. You know, and that, that may be a story where I'm the hero of the story. That may be a story where I'm the villain of the story. You know, we tell ourselves those stories when we go through things and we, we look at those experiences and, and I'll just replay those things in my mind over and over and over again. And I'm like, man, what, what kind of character was I in the story? And how could I change that story if I'm in that same environment again? How could I change my own actions to maybe fill a different role in that story? You know, we all want to be the hero of our story. Whatever, whatever story that is, whatever experience that is, we want to be the hero of our story but I think we need to ask ourselves who the main character actually should be. Because I don't think we should either be the hero or the villain, but just kind of a, a supporting character in the story. So I want to take this study from a, a passage in Numbers where we see the children of Israel coming to the land of Canaan, the promised land, and they send those spies into the land. And we see them telling two different stories about what they experienced while they were in Canaan. And I think we can draw a lot of lessons from the stories that they told there in Numbers. So let's start out in Numbers chapter 13, verse 27 through 28, where we see kind of just a brief overview of those spies' report. Now, if you'll remember, just to give a little bit of background, uh, God rescued Israel from Egypt, and he took them out of slavery in Egypt. And they wandered through the wilderness for some time, looking for the promised land, and they had finally come to the city. And God says, take a man from every tribe, 12 spies, send them into the land. They can look and just see, see what it has to offer, see what opportunities are there, see what risks are there. Just go out and spy out the land before you go in and take it. Now, God had promised the, the land of Canaan to them for, for decades, for as long as any of them could have, could have remembered, since Abraham. And so this had been something that had been in the works for a long time, but they finally got to the city. So this, this shows the, the spies' report. They had gone into the land, and they come back and they give a report to the other people. It says, Then they told him and said, We went to the land where you sent us. It truly flows with milk and honey, and this is its fruit. Nevertheless, the people who dwell in the land are strong. The cities are fortified and very large. Moreover, we saw the descendants of Anak there. Now, in this passage, we can see kind of two sides to this first part of the story. They, they say, look, we looked at the land, and it's just like God said it was going to be. It's a land flowing with milk and honey. It's, it's bountiful. It's fruitful. And they, it tells in another part of the story, it talks about the, the bundle of grapes that they brought, just one bunch of grapes that they had to haul between two people. And so it was just this massive produce. And so they saw this incredible opportunity in the land of Canaan, but then the other side of the story starts to come out. And they say, however, their cities are strong. And the descendants of Anak are there. And we know in the next passage that those were giants. In verses 31 through 33, it says, But the men who had gone up with him said, We are not able to go up against the people, for they are stronger than we. 
And they gave the children of Israel a bad report of the land which they had spied out, saying, The land through which we have gone as spies is a land that devours its inhabitants. And all the people whom we saw in it are men of great stature. There we saw the giants, the descendants of Anak, came from the giants. And we were like grasshoppers in our own sight, and so we were in their sight. Can you imagine being the Israelites in this moment? God having promised your patriarch, your, your forefather, God having promised this land to you, and you finally get to the land that you've waited years to find. And many people had, had died off in seeking the promised land. But these people came to the promised land with these high hopes and high expectations, trusting in God to, to solve this problem for them. Then they walk in, and there's giants there. You know, these aren't giants like we, we depict in our fairy tales, but still we see giants in the Bible ranging from 9 to 13 feet tall. And if there's a dude that's twice as tall as me, and we're talking about hand-to-hand combat, I'm not about that. Like, like I can't take that. And so anybody that's approaching this land, they knew that there was going to be challenges, but they didn't know there were going to be giants. And I think that was the biggest thing to them that they reported back that just terrified them and just took the wind out of their sails. They say, we're like grasshoppers in our own eyes and in their eyes. This isn't hand-to-hand combat like they need to pick up their swords. They're just going to like step on us. We got nothing. And so the children of Israel doubted God's plan, and they changed the story because the factors had changed. These variables had changed in this process that they were going through. Then in Numbers chapter 14, verse 6 through 9, we see the report of the last two spies. Ten spies gave the report that we just looked at, this evil report that said they couldn't take the land, but the two gave a different report. It says, But Joshua the son of Nun and Caleb the son of Jephunneh, who were among those who had spied out the land, tore their clothes. And they spoke to all the congregation of the children of Israel, saying, The land we pass through to spy out is an exceedingly good land. If the Lord delights in us, then he will bring us into this land and give it to us, a land which flows with milk and honey. Only do not rebel against the Lord, nor fear the people of the land, for they are our bread. Their protection has departed from them, and the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. Did these guys experience the same thing? Because it kind of doesn't sound like it. It kind of doesn't sound like they had just gone into the same land and seen the same giants and experienced the same things because they told a completely different story. The ten said, we can't do this. There's no chance. There's giants there. We can't handle it. And Joshua and Caleb said, yeah, there's, there's giants there. But we serve a great God. And he's got this. He's going to take care of us. He's going to handle it. We can take them. They are our bread. He said, they're, they're just ripe for the picking. They're like food to us. We're just going to go in and devour them. And take this land because God said it's ours. And so they had confidence that they could do it because they relied on God. Because God was the main character of their story instead of them. And so we see a group of people, all of whom experienced the exact same thing and saw all of the exact same things, but told totally different stories. We all know people like this. We know people that will go through hardships, and it's really not that big a deal, but they blow it out of proportion, and they'll just tell you about it, and they're like, oh, man, it's just, it's just so hard, and I don't know how I'm going to handle it, and it's just it's too much for me, and I'm just overwhelmed. And, and then there's the other people that will go through everything, just absolute tragedy. They're like, you know, it's okay. Yeah, it's hard. Yeah, these are are giant problems, but it's cool because I serve a great God. 
So what makes those people tell the different stories? And I think it's about who the main character of the story is. We want it to be us, but it can't be us. Because for the 10 spies, they were the main character of the story. They said, we can't do this. They're too big. We don't have enough power. We don't have enough strength. We're not prepared enough. They were the main character of the story, and they, and they stunk. As a main character, you know, no, nobody wants to read that story or watch that movie because the main character just gave up. But in the case of the two, Joshua and Caleb, they made God the main character of their story. So I want to look at how we can do that this, this evening. In Numbers 13 and verse 33, I want to go back and kind of look at the ten spies, look at their uh, negative perspective on this situation. Verse 33 says, There we saw the giants, the descendants of Anak, uh, came from the giants, and we were like grasshoppers in our own sight, and so we were in their sight. So I want to look at what made them have this perspective. And a lot of it is insecurity, feeling insignificant. They felt, they felt like they were small because of the people they were going up against. And in Judges chapter 6, verse 11 through 15, we see another guy that felt really small uh, when he received the calling of God, when he received an opportunity from God. And he didn't feel good enough or big enough to be able to take advantage of it. It says, And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, you mighty man of valor. Gideon said to him, O my Lord, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? And where are all his miracles, which our fathers told us about, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and delivered us into the hands of the Midianites. Then the Lord turned to him and said, Go in this might of yours, and you shall save Israel from the hand of the Midianites. Have I not sent you? So he said to him, O my Lord, how can I save Israel? Indeed, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. Again, we see Gideon, and, and God comes to him with this powerful message. He says, go in this might of yours. Go take this role. Go do what I've called you to do, you mighty man of valor. And he used these terms to tell Gideon, you know, you, you got this, because I got you. But Gideon wouldn't listen. He said, I'm, I'm nothing. I'm from the smallest family of the smallest tribe. I, I, I can't do this. This is for some warlord, some, some king, some you know, great leader that can take advantage of an opportunity like this or a challenge like this. I think it's interesting that the first king of Israel said the exact same thing. Saul had the same response when Samuel called him to be the king of Israel. He said, I'm from the smallest family in the smallest tribe of Israel. Why should I be king? So when God calls us to something, that's the way we answer. We say, I, I don't know if I got it. I don't know if I'm big enough. I don't know if I'm strong enough. I don't know if I can handle what you're asking me to do. And we'll tell God all about how insignificant we are. Do you think you know yourself better than God knows you? We're trying to tell God why we're not capable of doing what he's asked us to do, knowing what we're capable of. And more than that, knowing what he's capable of. It's not about what you're capable of. So we answer the calling of God in a similar way to, to Gideon and to those ten spies that went to the land of Canaan. We just can't handle it. And we feel overwhelmed and insignificant in view of, of the things that God calls us to. In Numbers chapter 14, verse 1 through 4, it talks about the response of the people as a whole to what the ten spies said. And, and it's a sob story. The story they told is a sob story. 
Numbers 14, 1 through 4, it says, So all the congregation lifted up their voices and cried, and the people wept that night. And all the children of Israel complained against Moses and Aaron, and the whole congregation said to them, If only we had died in the land of Egypt, or if only we had died in this wilderness. Why has the Lord brought us to this land to fall by the sword, that our wives and our children should become victims? Would it not be better for us to return to Egypt? So they said to one another, Let us select a leader and return to Egypt. It always kind of cracks me up when I read these passages from, from Israel, but it's also just so depressing. They have this great opportunity from God, and they say, we can't handle it because they're bigger than we are. And you know what? Because we can't, the, can't get into the promised land, you know what seems like the next best option? Let's just turn around and go back to Egypt and be slaves again. That was cool. Why was that the next best option? But they were, they were afraid. They were afraid of what they were up against. And that's what we do when we're scared of, of positions that we get put in and circumstances we get put in, is we compare it to something else that we can understand a little bit better and we can have a better grasp on. We say, man, if it's going to be like this, it might as well be, you know, fill in the blank with another bad situation that we feel like isn't quite as scary or overwhelming. The Israelites were afraid. They, they were legitimately afraid. And I'm kind of picking on them and making fun of them because they were dramatic. But at the same time, that's actually how they felt. And that's probably how we would feel if we were in the same circumstance. Because they were up against something that they just they had never handled before and they didn't know how to handle now. But their response to that was to compare it to something that felt more like something they could grasp. But they have this depressing sob story of just looking back to a bad situation they were in before and say, we might as well be back in Egypt. And they'd said that before, but this time they actually picked out a leader to take them back to Egypt to be slaves again. Like they were about to do it. And that's how low they got, because they didn't feel like they could handle what God had set before them. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 12 through 13, we see the early first instance of victimhood and blaming somebody else for your problems. And that's what the Israelites did too. They blamed God. They blamed Moses. They said, God, why would you, why would you take us out of Egypt and bring us to this promised land and then kill us here? Why would you take us here for our wives and our children to be just cut by the sword? And in Genesis 3, verse 12 through 13, it says, Then the man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me of the tree and I ate. And the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. We've got just excuses for everything. We can excuse ourselves for, from anything that we do. And we can see that pretty early on in human nature, because Adam and Eve both did it. Adam said, the woman that you gave me, she gave me the fruit. Well, did Eve mess up? Yeah, Eve messed up. But did she force feed Adam? I don't think so. And so Adam messed up too. But then Eve, God, God asks Eve, what, what happened? She says, well, the devil, he confused me and he, and he made me eat the fruit. Anything to make it not your fault. You know, I've had to learn a lot in the past that the fault doesn't have to belong to one person. We always want the fault to be kind of compartmentalized. And if you have a conflict with somebody, it's got to belong to someone, but not both of you. Preferably, the other person. 
But we want to compartmentalize it and make it somebody's fault. And we want to make it the other person's fault so that we don't have to deal with the consequences. And it's got to be undeniably my fault before I say, yeah, that was me. That, that was my bad. But we'll excuse ourselves from, from everything. And that's what the Israelites did too. They came to the land of Canaan. God said, take it, it's yours. They're, they're your bread. They're ready for you to just walk in and devour them. And they said, oh, man, we, they're too big. We just can't handle it. You haven't prepared us for this. Why would you bring us here? We've been telling them he was going to bring them there for, for centuries. Why were they surprised when they got there? But we can make excuses and make things feel like they're not our fault. In Genesis 18, verse 10 through 14, we see another person's response to the promises of God and the doubt that we often have as humans. It says, And he said, I will certainly return to you according to the time of life, and behold, Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. Sarah was listening in the tent door, which was behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, well advanced in age, and Sarah had passed the age of childbearing. Therefore Sarah laughed within herself, saying, After I have grown old, shall I have pleasure, my Lord being old also? And the Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh, saying, Shall I surely bear a child since I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time I will return to you according to the time of life, and Sarah shall have a son. This is how we respond to God's promises a lot of the time. God had been promising. He'd been making this promise for so long to Abraham. He says, look, you're going to have this, this seed promise, this land promise. You're going to have this great nation that's in your genealogy. And Abraham believed it. He had faith in the promises of God. But when God comes to Abraham and Sarah, and Abraham's 100 and Sarah's 99, it kind of sounds like a funny promise. God's saying, yeah, Sarah's going to have a kid. Sarah's like, I don't think so. It, it didn't look like a, a feasible promise to make. And so Sarah laughs at the promise of God saying, I, I don't think you got this one. There's going to be some other way. And Sarah had tried to make it work a different way. She had given her servant to Abraham to be his wife so they could try to have a child to, you know, fulfill this promise that God had made to them some other way because they didn't trust in God's way. And so we laugh at the promises of God. When God says, look, I'll forgive you and I love you no matter what, and I have compassion on you, I say, yeah, I think that's for everybody else. I don't know if, I don't know if that applies to me because God forgiving me is about as unrealistic as a 99-year-old 90, woman having a child. That's, that's how it feels. And so when God makes a promise to you and he says, no matter what you've done, if you still trust in me and you turn to me and you listen to me, you're forgiven. It's done. I don't always believe that promise. I don't always believe the promises that God has made because they just feel impossible. And that's how Abraham and Sarah felt. And that's why they laughed at the promise of God because it didn't feel feasible to their human perspective. And that's what the Israelites did too. Because they were the main character of the story that they were telling and they were too small. The story that they told was actually pretty accurate. It just had the focus on the, on the wrong person. Had the focus on the wrong character. They were too small. They were incapable. They had no chance. If it was just about them, they had no chance 
of defeating the Canaanites. They had no chance of taking the promised land. There was was no hope for them. And so the story that they told was accurate because they had changed who the main character was. But if they brought the focus back on God, they would have seen that there was nothing to fear. Nothing at all. And there is no room for fear in our relationship with God. The Israelites were afraid. And we're afraid a lot of the time too. And that's why we don't believe the promises of God is because we're afraid of ourselves and we're afraid of the things that we've done and we're afraid of taking ownership. We're, we're afraid. And that's why we don't trust in God and we don't follow him. But there is no room for fear in our relationship with God. 1 John 4, 17 through 19, it says, Love has been perfected among us in this, that we may have boldness in the day of judgment, because as he is, so are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. Because fear involves torment. Because he who fears has not been made perfect in love. We love him because he first loved us. I want to focus in on this last statement. We love him because he first loved us. Did God love Israel? Of course he did. Did he show that love for them? Of course he did. Did they remember it and love him in return? In the story that we're looking at this evening? Not so much. Why couldn't they look back to being delivered from Egypt? Why couldn't they look back to crossing the Red Sea on dry ground? Because God did the impossible and split a sea and then made a wind go over it and dry it out so that they could cross easily. Why couldn't they remember that? Why couldn't they remember the manna? Why couldn't they remember the quail that he gave them or the water from a rock? All these impossible things that God had done because of his love for the nation of Israel. Why couldn't they remember that and love him because he first loved them? But they were just too focused on the fear of the moment that they couldn't have that love of God and that kind of relationship with God and closeness and trust of God that they could have had if they'd let go of that fear and brought him back to his rightful place in the center of the stories that we tell. So I want to look at the ways that we can make God the center of the story. They made themselves the center of the story. How do we make God the center of the story? Going back to our original text in Numbers 13 and verse 30, it says, Then Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, Let us go up at once and take possession, for we are well able to overcome it. It Sounds a little cocky, doesn't it? Caleb says, We got this. It's no big deal. Yeah, there's giants, but we got it. But then when you continue... You know that Caleb's not saying that he had it, but that God had it. In Isaiah chapter 40 and verse 22, it shows that God is bigger than whatever our giants are. Isaiah 40 and 22, it says, It is he who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them out like a tent to dwell in. I chose to to put this passage in this lesson this evening because it uses the exact same term that the Israelites used in talking about how the giants viewed them. They said, we're like grasshoppers in their eyes. We're so small compared to them, we're like insects. And God says, yeah, everybody's like an insect to me. The whole world is like an insect to me. God's that big that whoever you feel like an insect in front of, they're an insect to God. Your giants that you face, whatever they are, whatever obstacles are in your way, whatever's holding you back from being the person that you want to be or fulfilling the the opportunities and the callings that God has given you, those giants, they're like grasshoppers to God. So when you feel small, 
Think about how small your enemies feel. Because God's that big. And that's the God that we serve, who is the main character of the story. You're not the hero of the story. We all look for ourselves in the Bible. We look for our story when we read, when we read the Bible. But it's not your story. Stop looking for you and start looking for God. Because it's his story. You just get to be a part of it. You get to take part in God's story. Your story's not in there. And so when you read the Bible, look for his story and how he's allowed you to be a part of it. How he's allowed you to be an extra in his story. Because that's what it is. It's not yours. It's his. And he's that big. Isaiah 41, verse 13 through 14 It says, For I, the Lord your God, will hold your right hand, saying to you, Fear not, I will help you. Fear not, you worm, Jacob, you men of Israel, I will help you, says the Lord, and your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. I think it's interesting the the terminology that it uses in this passage. He refers to them as, You worm, Jacob. And and I think that represents the kind of relationship that Israel had with God over the, the centuries. They were just this close, and they would let him hold their right hand and guide them through, through hardships. And then they'd just run off and leave him. And they didn't want any part with God anymore. And they were just always fickle, always changing their minds, always running to God when they felt like they needed him, but then running away when it didn't feel like a moment where they really needed God's support. You know, little kids do that. They get confident. They get running out on their own, doing their own thing. And then they face plant, and they want a hand to hold. Well, we do that too. We don't think we need God's hand to hold. We don't think we need his guidance and his help and his courage that we don't have until we face plant. And until it hurts, until we really feel like we need him. But we always really need him. But this is what that great God that everything's a grasshopper to This is the kind of relationship that he has offered for us. He wants to hold our hand and guide us through whatever challenges come our way. In Philippians chapter 4 and verse 13, this is maybe one of the most popular verses in Scripture. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. We we kind of are a big fan of the first half of this passage. That's kind of where we focus. I can do all things. Nice. I got it. I can have confidence. I can play sports really great and jump really high. Maybe I can dunk. That's unrealistic for me, but, you know, we, we think we can do all these great things. But then we forget about the through Christ who strengthens me, and that being able to do great things through Christ who strengthens us means that we have to submit and forget about ourselves and our own agendas and our own petty goals and let it be his story. So we love this passage because it's empowering to us and makes us feel like we can do anything, which we can, but it's only in submission to God as that extra, as that supporting character of God as the main character of the story. In Numbers chapter 14 and verse 8, we see that God keeps his promise. If the Lord delights in us, then he will bring us into this land and give it to us, a land which flows with milk and honey. This, again, is Caleb and Joshua's account of what they had seen in the land of Canaan. They said, you know, if God delights in us, then we'll be able to go into the land. He'll give us everything that we've ever wanted. But they realized that for God to delight in them, 
they had to submit to him. And they had to do what, what he was asking them to do. And they had to trust in him, and they had to approach the land of Canaan and go out and take it. God had offered it to them. The, the people of the land of Canaan were, were just there for them to overtake and devour. But they had to go. They had to go into the land of Canaan and take what God had offered them. And Caleb and Joshua realized that that's what it took for God to delight in them and give them the land that he had promised. In Galatians chapter 6 and verse 9, it talks to us about the victory that we're going to receive, but how it doesn't always come the way that we expect it. Galatians chapter 6 and verse 9 says, And let us not grow weary while doing good, for in due season we shall reap if we do not lose heart. The Israelites didn't, go, didn't get to go into the land of Canaan until 40 years later because of their rebellion against God. And God still keeps his promises. That, that's what's hard for me to remember. Is because if I was one of the Israelites that ended up dying in the wilderness, I wouldn't feel like God still kept his promises. But God still kept his promise to the, to the nation of Israel because he brought them into the land of Canaan. Just under the leadership of Joshua rather than Moses 40 years later and with a lot more hardship under their belt. But God still keeps his promises. I don't like this term, due season. The term due season means like somewhere out in the distance that I can't like put a finger on and know where it's coming and plan for it and have it on my, my calendar. I don't like due season because that means I have to rely on God. And that means it's going to happen when it happens rather than when I choose to make it happen because I'm the boss and I get to make my own rules and be the, the main character. Due season means I'm not in control. And that's when the nation of Israel received the land of Canaan. God still kept his promises, but they received the land of Canaan in due season rather than right then because of their own rebellion against God. And so we need to understand that even sometimes when we're in obedience to God, making him the main character of the story, submitting to him, things still don't always work out the way that we expect they're going to or in the timing that we expect they're going to. But God keeps his promises. And as the main character of your story, he's not going to let you down. He's not going to let this end a bad way. Even if your life ends a bad way, your eternity will not. Because God keeps his promises. And that promised land of heaven is what awaits us if we submit to God. I want to ask you this evening what your story looks like. A lot of our stories start about the same way. And in Romans chapter 3 and verse 23, it says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. This is how all of our stories begin. You know, we begin as, as innocent children, and then we slowly fall further and further away from that innocence into sin against God and into rebellion against Him. But then for those of us who are here this evening and for many others, we hit a point where we get tired of losing. The Israelites, they didn't want to lose, but they chose to lose because they focused on them and they, they chose not to submit to God. But when we're in this position where we're just in the middle of sin and we hit rock bottom and we say, I'm tired of losing, I need somebody bigger than me to lead this story, then we can make a difference. In Romans chapter 6, verse 23, it says, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. In that position of sin, all we can look forward to is death. There's no promised land. There's no hope. There's no objective to go toward. There's, there's just death. 
And if we stay in that position, that's all we can look forward to. But that's when we hit this point where, where we get tired. We get tired of losing. And if we have the opportunity, everybody does, we, we get to this point where we say, you know, maybe God's got a better way. In Acts chapter 9 and verse 5, it says, And he said, Who are you, Lord? Then the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. It is hard for you to kick against the goads. A lot of us have hit that moment where we were just in the depths of sin and whatever we were participating in and, and just struggling through things. Some of you may have come from a background where God wasn't really in your perspective. I was raised in the church and I always had a, a view of, you know, I, I need to be better, but I wasn't getting better. But there had to come a point where I said, you know what? I am tired. Jesus says to, to Saul of Tarsus, before he became Paul, he says, it's hard for you to kick back against me. I'm the Lord whom you persecute, and it's tough for you to kick back against me and my plan. And that's when it hit Saul, and he said, you know, you're right. And he turned his life around. And he stopped being the main character of his story, and he turned his life over to God because he was tired of losing. He was tired of fighting God and rebelling against him, and he chose to turn his life over. In Romans chapter 5, verse 6 through 9, it says, For when we were still without strength, in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. Not after we fixed it. Not after we got better. Not after we became the people that he wanted us to be and fulfilled his plan and conquered our enemies and defeated our giants. But when we were still without strength, while we were still ungodly, that's when Christ died for us. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet perhaps for a good man someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. I don't know where you're at in your life this evening, but I've had those moments where I looked at myself and I said, I am just tired of losing. I'm tired of what I have to offer myself. I'm tired of the level of success that I can achieve. I'm tired of the rat race, of just getting all I can in terms of, of physical successes and experiences with no long-term fulfillment. We, we get tired and we get tired because we're trying to take it all on ourselves and we're trying to run this story and we're trying to just make it all work right and make it all be how we want it to be. And that's not going to change until you turn that story over into the hands of God and allow him to lead. Do you think the story of a Christian has them as the main character? Not at all. While we were still without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. And that's when our story gets to change. And God's allowed us to write that story. He's allowed us to make that decision to turn our lives over to his care and to submit to his will and to conquer those giants and achieve those things, not by our own power, but by his. So if you're tired of losing and if you're tired of kicking back against God and facing your hardships and facing your giants and never making any progress, it's time to turn your story over to him. It's time to turn your life over to the God who created you and the God 
who looks at everything, all of your problems, like grasshoppers that he can just squash in an instant, that he can solve for you. That doesn't mean that our lives are going to be easy as Christians, but it means that they're bigger than we are. And that's what we need. We need lives that look forward to a promised land, the promised land of heaven, eternal life with God. And we can have that if we'll just turn our story over to him, if we'll allow him to lead us rather than us trying to lead our own lives. So I encourage you to do that this evening. If you haven't obeyed the gospel through baptism and submitted your life over to God, we want to give you an opportunity to do that. Or if you're already a Christian, but you feel like you're struggling to to turn those things over to God and allow Him to lead and submit those things to Him and follow His plan for your life rather than your own, we want to help you to do that. We want to help you to follow His plan and allow Him to be the main character of your story. If you need any kind of assistance from the church this evening, please come while we stand and sing. We hope you have enjoyed this message recorded at Highway 71 Church of Christ. If you have questions concerning this message or would like to set up a study, please call 479-647-2658. May God bless you.